It's good to have you this morning as we continue in our study of Proverbs. Last week, we opened by saying that money is one of, if not our biggest source of stress. Today, we're going to talk about people. Now, I don't know about you out there. I know probably for most of you, uh, you have perfect conflict-free relationships. But for some of us, people are also a source of stress. And the book of Proverbs really shows the double-edged sword of our relationships with people, especially in a fallen world. Proverbs shows uh, that our relationships have potential to bring stress and our relationships have potential to make us feel blessed. So let me show you a few Proverbs that talk about this two-edged sword right off the bat. You have a handout in your bulletin that has a list of Proverbs that we'll go through throughout our time. We'll, we'll reference them uh, at various points. So potential to bless and stress. For example, your kids have potential to bless you or to stress you. Proverbs 15 verse 20 says, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Your husband or your wife has a huge potential to bless you or to stress you out. Look at the two sides of chapter 12, verse 4. We'll, we'll explain this verse more in detail later. Proverbs 12, verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. That sounds like a blessing. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. That sounds like stressing. Your friends have huge potential to bless you or to stress you out. Look at the two sides of Proverbs 18, verse 24, under friendship. It says, a man of many com companions may come to ruin. Stresses you out because they prove not to be friends. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This double-edged nature of relationships to bless and distress. Why does Proverbs talk about this? Well, Proverbs talks about the potential for stress that relationships can bring. It does this in order to warn us, in order to open our eyes and cause us to examine ourselves if we are guilty of what it's talking about. But also by talking about relationships' potential for stress, I think Proverbs also acknowledges the pain you and I have experienced from our relationships. Proverbs, like the rest of the Bible, doesn't ask us to paper over our wounds and just put on a smiling face. No, there is healing power in knowing that someone out there sees you and knows what you've gone through. And that someone, in this case, is not just anybody, it's God himself. But Proverbs also talks about the potential relationships have to bless us in order to lift up our eyes. So that in our relationships, yes, there is hurt and there is guilt, but with the Lord in our relationships, there is also hope. So this is the balanced tone we want to strike today as we delve into what Proverbs has to say about our relationships. We can summarize it like this. God gave relationships with the intention to bless. But our sin selfish sinfulness means that relationships stress. And yet God can redeem so that our relationships can be what they were meant to be. We'll talk about three main categories of relationships that Proverbs discusses, going from narrow to broad relationships that some of us have to relationships that all of us have. So we'll talk about parenting and marriage and friendship. And I'm going to expect you to be an expert on each one of these topics by the end of the day. I'm, I'm totally kidding. Um, but as we walk through each of these categories, 
We'll see how God intends them to be good gifts, um, but then we'll see the problems that arise because of our sin. But then finally, we'll see how God can redeem those relationships so that, they, so that we use them in the way they were intended. So category number one is parenting. So again, first thing we want to say is God intends this relationship to be a good gift. So parents, that's a lot of us. Parents, although you may often not feel like it, your kids are meant to be God's gift to you. Solomon looked back to his father David and how he tenderly treated him as precious. In Proverbs 4, verse 3, under that uh, category of parenting, he says, When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother. Kids are meant to be God's gift to us. Conversely, kids, although you might not think it sometimes, your parents are meant to be God's gift to you. The Bible talks about that all the time. Proverbs is no different. Take a look at chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. It says, My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life to your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. What are these verses saying? They're saying that God intends for parents' instruction and parents' nurturing to mature a, style, uh, a, to mature a child so that he or she can be stable walk securely. uh, Parents are meant to be a gift to children. Look also at chapter 7, verses 1 to 2. It says, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments, look at this, and live. This verse is saying that God intends for parents' instruction to quite literally save their children's lives. Meant to be a gift. But parents are good gifts to kids and kids are good gifts to parents. Really when everything is working as it should work. Now on the one hand, things are working when mom and dad are active and united in giving instruction. So look at chapter one, verse eight. It says, hear my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Both mom and dad united together giving instruction. This is a gift when things are working as it should. Things are working when kids don't just hear mom and dad's instruction. They see mom and dad's instruction with how mom and dad live. Look at chapter 20, verse 7. It says, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. On the other hand, these relationships, parents to kids and kids to parents, this is a gift when things are working well. On the other hand, things are working when kids listen to their parents' instruction. Look at what chapter 2, verse 1 expects kids to do. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Look at chapter 20, verse 20, at what kids are expected not to do. It says, If one curses his father or mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. One commentator explains that to curse your parents isn't simply to swear at them. It's to treat them like they're worthless and like they're beneath us. So again, things work well when kids follow the fifth commandment, when they honor their father and their mother. And to honor means basically to treat your parents with respect. So you put these two sides together of this relationship, parents and kids, and you get a two-way street. 
This is when it all works well, when traffic is flowing clearly on both sides of the street. When on the one side of the street, parents are active and united in their instruction and their example. And on the other side of the street, when kids listen to and honor their parents. This is when it's a good gift. This is when it's working well. But now, I, I want you to think, and you'll see where this is going. Someone tell me their favorite old cheesy family sitcom. Anybody? You, how, about, uh, how about Little House on the Prairie? Okay? Little House on the Prairie. If you don't know it, you can Google it later. In Little House on the Prairie, you, usually like any other family sitcom, there's some kind of conflict in the family, right? But everything seems to get back to normal in just a matter of 30 minutes. If only life was that simple. We know how things should work, but that doesn't mean that's always how things end up working. So if there is a two-way street between parents and kids, then sin clogs the traffic and prevents it from flowing on both sides. And Proverbs acknowledges that. So on the side for kids, there is a problem. Look at the first part of chapter 22, verse 15. For as precious of a gift that kids are, it says folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Or look at chapter 29, verse 15. Just the second part, we'll come back to the first part. Chapter 29, verse 15 says, A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Finally, we talked about this a little bit ago. Look at chapter 22, verse 6. It's one of the more familiar verses on this list. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So many misunderstand this verse because it's not translated as well as it could be. In the original language, it more literally says, train up a child in his way. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So in other words, let a kid get their way all the time from the time they're little and he will get further and further entrenched into it. This is all a common experience, right? What is most natural to kids? You have to teach kids, really, to say please and thank you. You have to teach kids to share. You have to teach kids to show respect. You don't really have to teach kids to say mine. You don't really have to teach kids to fight. You don't really have to teach kids to whine. Each one of us. Uh, has inherited a heart that bends away from God and toward ourselves. So there's a potential for a traffic jam, and not just on the side of the kids, but also on the side of the parents. For adults, there is a way that things are supposed to work, but here's the problem. Like kids don't naturally listen to and honor their parents, parents are tempted not to instruct and correct their kids. Solomon addresses this temptation to be passive in parenting. Right? It's, it's tempting to be passive because it, parenting is really tired, tiring. It takes a lot of work to train and to redirect. Even in Proverbs, you're going to see Solomon talking about the same stuff over and over again because that's, that's what he needs to get through to his son. It's tempting to be passive in parenting because it could just feel easier to let the kids do what they want to do. It could feel easy to feel defeated and want to give up. It can be tempting to think that letting kids do what they want to do is how you get your kids to be your friend. So here's a potential for a traffic jam. The kids don't want to listen and the parents don't feel like parenting. So traffic starts to clear up when there is human intervention, like that video I talked about. When the parents aren't passive but active, 
And Proverbs has three broad categories for active parenting. It talks about instruction, correction, and example. So in instruction, we teach and we train and we explain and we positively reinforce. We communicate expectations. Over and over again, we read Solomon exhorting his son, listen to my instruction. And Solomon talks about everything and anything. And he explains why certain decisions and certain habits honor the Lord. He talks about hard work and handling money and romance. The temptation would be to just outsource instruction to the church or to school. But really what Proverbs and the rest of the Bible is saying is that instruction begins in the home with mom and with dad. The temptation would be to maybe just skip over instruction and only do correction. But that would be just to be reactive and not proactive. But here's the thing. Kids don't always follow instructions. So the next category of parenting in Proverbs is correction. Now, when Proverbs talks about correction, it often uses the phrase, the rod of discipline. Now, there's a lot we could say about correction. There's a lot we could say about that topic in particular. And just know that this is just a a start of a conversation. But uh, physical correction is not, one thing to say, it's not the only or even the first kind of correction we should employ. In fact, if you look at chapter 29, verse 15, reproof goes right alongside the rod. So the words that we use. The old British pastor, Charles Bridges, says this. He says, Our Heavenly Father never stirs the rod with his children if his gentle voice of instruction would prevail. If physical correction is is medicine, it's not food. It's the remedy for occasional diseases, not the daily regimen for life and nourishment. So again, from the outset, when Proverbs talks about physical correction, it's not our first or our only option in correcting. There is redirecting, there's withholding of privileges, there's the look, there's timeouts. And I'm sure you can talk to parents and you can find a lot more other ideas too. But there are occasions when physical correction might be necessary. Along the lines of 29 verse 19, sometimes mere words aren't enough and they don't get through. So how do we think well about this and not just passively about this? Well, again, there's probably a lot more we could say, but... Pastor Sam Sam Crabtree of Bethlehem Baptist Church, he offers six principles for physical correction. Uh, Maybe this is a start. First, he says, understand that the perfect loving father uses discipline, even the rod at times, in order to wake us up to our sin and to restore us to him. One example is 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 to 15. Second principle for physical correction is to model acceptance of correction yourself. Let your kids observe you confessing and repenting. The third principle, Pastor Crabtree says, is to be alert to underreaction or to overreaction. Physical correction should be done selectively for defiance and only for a limited season in a child's development. It's to be phased out as the child shows more and more responsibility, self-restraint, and maturity. Fourth principle, he says that physical correction should be applied with the utmost consistency, not according to whim or to weariness or to emotions or to impulse, but according to clearly communicated boundaries that are established in advance. Fifth principle, he says on a related note, wise physical correction establishes boundaries such as a limited number of strokes, no breaking of the skin, no impact to ears, eyes, or other parts of the anatomy that are vulnerable to injury, no administering out of rage. And healthy physical correction are strengthened by tender follow-up. 
Number six, sixth principle again, physical correction, once again, is not the only tool in the toolbox. It must be accompanied by other tools of parenting. We don't start with this, and it's not the only thing we do. And friends, it's probably wise if you can't follow those principles not to do it at all. So if this feels, uh, leaves you feeling overwhelmed uh, and inadequate, I feel especially inadequate in trying to explain it. Well, uh, on the one hand, um, we could say that you don't have to be a parent alone. You can do this in a community that supports and helps you. On the other hand, we should say that you you've probably are doing so much more good than you realize as a parent. Uh, and then finally, if you feel overwhelmed or inadequate uh, when, when approaching uh, what the Bible says about parenting, well, so that, that feeling is not entirely off base. Here's what I mean is that your kids need more than just your intervention. You are not enough for your kids. Your kids need Christ's intervention just like you do. So the greatest legacy you can leave your kids is your example of clinging to Jesus and not yourself. Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. So we're going to broaden our scope just a little bit, talk about the next category of relationships from Proverbs, and that's marriage. So my mind returns again to the family sitcom, and and the, the way sitcoms commonly picture marriage. Most shows imply that marriage is a drag, that singleness and independence are where it's at, that true freedom lie uh, in, in being independent. And you don't have to give that up in order to find romantic fulfillment. In the words of Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec, every time a couple gets married, two single people die. <laughs> but ironically, most people on shows really want to get married and at the same time see marriage as bondage and as slavery. They see it as conflict-ridden and joyless. Is this how Proverbs understands marriage? Not at all. Proverbs corrects our misunderstanding and shows us that marriage, when it's working, is a good gift. Proverbs 18.22, perhaps expressed no clearly than here, says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 5 verse 18 reminds us that marriage is not meant to be a joyless enterprise, but a joyful one. It says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. But just like parenting, marriage is a good gift when it's working as it's intended to work. Marriage works to bring us security and stability when there is commitment to remain faithful to each other. Look at how chapter 2, verse 16 to 17 describe the forbidden woman. She's the one who forsakes the companion of her youth. Marriage works as a good gift when it's working as it's intended to work. When it rests on the foundation of our relationship with God. Back to chapter 2, verse 17. Our lives have meaning and purpose first from our covenant with the Lord. Or all the way down to chapter 31, verse 30. There we're reminded that we don't find our worth in ourselves. We don't devote ourselves first to ourselves and our own beauty. No, marriage works as it's it's intended to work. When love is open, um, when we find our worth and devote ourselves first to the Lord. Marriage is a good gift but it's a good gift when it's working as it's intended to work. It's working when in love is openly expressed between husband and wife. Just a couple of verses earlier in chapter 31, verse 28, it, said, it says husbands are meant to praise their wives. So yes, men, she wants to hear you say good words to her. 
So in verse 28, it says, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. And on the other hand, wives express love for their husbands. So chapter 12, verse 4, calls a wife a husband's crown. At least means in part that she is his biggest support. So marriage is a good gift when it's working as it's intended to work. But right now, I might know what you're thinking. That maybe this is how marriage works for the people who I see on Facebook and Instagram, who are always happy and smiling and doing really fun things. But this doesn't feel like how it works for me all the time. Now, the couples you think are perfect, let me remind you, are people just like you and me. And the way Proverbs describes marriage, um, it, it describes how it's meant to work. But Proverbs also acknowledges that that's not, that's not always how marriage ends up working. Right? Instead of loyalty and commitment, Proverbs acknowledges that there is lust and cheating. Instead of, instead of marriages that have deep trust in the Lord, Proverbs acknowledges that we get caught up in shallow appearances. Instead of rejoicing, Proverbs acknowledges that in marriage there is often regretting and discontent. Instead of open expressions of love, Proverbs acknowledges we often keep our love hidden and we often keep our sins hidden as well. Instead of supporting one another, Proverbs acknowledges that there is often bickering and criticizing and undermining each other. You can see that in chapter 14, verse 1, or 21, verse 9. Both of these verses can apply to both husbands and wives. So here, marriage or or parenting are meant to be good gifts when they're working well. And whether it's parenting or marriage, those relationships don't often work the way they were intended. And it could even get to the point when a child or a spouse uh, is no longer safe. So just as a side note, if if that describes you this morning, we want to be a a safe group of people where you can get help and support to be a, a group of people where you can talk to and get help. But here, again on marriage, I think for every one of us who is married, it should be abundantly clear that we need a groom whose faithfulness exceeds our own. A groom whose love is more gracious, whose love is more sacrificial and selfless and tender and open than our own. And Ephesians chapter five describes such a groom. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present her to, to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, it's only when we find ourselves in Christ that we can begin to reflect Christ and that our marriages can be what they were intended to be. So when we find ourselves in Christ, we are sinners who are redeemed, And now we have a new, humble security about ourselves. We are secure enough to be humble. Right? Since Christ has had to come and rescue us because of our sin, that means we are worse than we thought. But that Christ actually did this also means that we are more loved than we thought as well. This gospel-produced, humble security means that we can follow Proverbs 28, 13. That we no longer have to cover up our sins. We no longer have to justify our wrongs. We can admit them, confess them, and even have the power to forsake them. We have a gospel-produced, humble security. That means we don't have to be devastated or defensive when our spouse confronts us. Because we know the truth about ourselves. That we have blind spots, that we have gotten things wrong. And we are okay with that because we are forgiven. So in line with chapter 9, verses 8 to 9. 
A humble security means that we, can, we should be approachable and willing to receive correction and instruction and teaching. You see, Proverbs doesn't uphold a critical or a nagging or an argumentative spirit. Uh, you could see that in chapter 21, verse 9. But if you read that verse, I, I appreciated what one commentator said about it. He says, the wise husband will reflect on what aspects of his behavior may have led to his wife to become quarrelsome and nagging. You see, that's what a humble security does. My friend, does a humble security mark you especially as a husband or a wife? Questions to ask yourself is like, am I approachable? Or does my spouse have to walk on eggshells around me? Can I admit when I'm wrong? Am I secure enough to be humble? So we are sinners who are redeemed by Christ. And that can make our marriages be what they were intended to be. That can make us have a new kind of honesty with one another. Right In the gospel, Christ honestly confronts us about the wrong that we've done. But Christ is honest in such a way that leads to our healing and not to our hurt or our embarrassment. Think of how he meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman there. In his own gentle way, Jesus is honest with her about the wrong that she's done, basically telling her, listen, you've had five husbands and you're sleeping with a guy who's not your husband. But Jesus' honesty leads to her healing, that she finds satisfaction no longer in the love of men, but in the love of Christ. So here, this gospel-produced honesty, especially in marriage, means that we don't just have to cover up our wounds we receive from our spouse, that we address them and are honest about them. And sometimes that's like peroxide on a cut. It stings, but it's meant to heal, not to hurt. Look at chapter 27, verse five. It says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds have a hard time healing if they aren't brought out into the open and addressed. And our model is the way that Christ addressed our sin. So as sinners redeemed by Christ, our marriages can be what they were intended to be. Lastly, we can have a new affection toward each other. The gospel gives us hope for forgiveness and restoration. As Christ has forgiven us, we can forgive one another, even our spouse, As Christ has restored closeness to us, we can get back to the place that chapter 518 talks about, where we rejoice in the spouse of our youth. Chapter 19, verse 11 is listed under friendship, but I think we can apply it to marriage as well. Being patient. When there is gospel-produced humility and honesty and forgiveness and patience, all these working together can restore gospel-produced affection for our spouse. Now, the road to get back there might look slightly different for each couple, but there is a road out there. That's because in being broken for us, Jesus can take what is broken in us and make it whole. That's true, even in our marriages. But now we're going to come to the last major category of relationships that Proverbs talks about. And I think it's the most underappreciated category of them all. It's friendship. Just think about it now. There are endless books and conferences about parenting and marriage. How many books and conferences have you ever heard of that are about friendship? And yet this relationship is available to all of us, not just to some of us, but it's underappreciated, especially today. 
For example, the Survey Center on American Life has found that Americans have much fewer friends than they used to. For example, 15% of men and 10% of women have no close friend. In 1990, 75% of Americans had someone they called a best friend. In 2021, 59% of Americans have someone they call a best friend. That is a huge drop-off. One author writes this, how friendship is underappreciated and undervalued. He said, Freud said that he didn't know what women wanted. He says, I know what women want. They want a whole lot of people to talk to. And what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about everything. And what do men want? They want a lot of pals, and they wish people wouldn't get so mad at them. So it used to be that when a man and a woman got married, the bride got a lot more people to talk to about everything from their extended family, and the groom got a lot more pals to tell dumb jokes to. (laughs) But most of us, if we get married nowadays, are just one more person for the other person. The groom gets one more pal, but it's a woman. The woman gets one more person to talk to about everything. But it's a man. So when a couple has an argument, they may think it's about money or power or intimacy or how to raise the kids or whatever. What they're really saying to each other, though, without realizing is this. You are not enough people. Oh, if you don't believe that author, believe this one. Among the first things that God says in the Bible is that it is not good for man to be alone. God made us for community and fellowship, not for isolation. God made each of us, kids or no kids, married or single, to have friends. See the good gift of friendship in Proverbs 18, verse 24. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? You might know this one, Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpens iron. And one man sharpens another. Oh, guys, are we really going to make it if we don't have people who will stick with us even on our worst days? Christian, are you really going to grow? Do you really expect to grow if you don't have a close brother or sister walking alongside you as a friend? But just like in our relationships, whether it's parenting or marriage, friendships can go awry because of our selfish sinfulness. We can ruin friendships by talking behind each other's backs. Chapter 16, verse 28 says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. We can ruin friendships when we harbor grudges and go back on the forgiveness that we previously offered. Chapter 17, verse 9, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. We can ruin friendships when we value them only because of what the person offers to us. Chapter 19, verse 4. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. We can ruin friendships when we treat them shallowly. I bet you know this, that there is a difference between being friendly and being a friend. Chapter 20, verse 6. Again, many many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find We can ruin friendships when we take revenge instead of giving grace. Chapter 24, verse 29 warns us, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay back the man for what he has done. That's not what a friend does. We can ruin friendships when we don't have a dose of self-awareness. 
self-awareness about our own sin, as chapter 28, verse 13 talks about, or even, perhaps my favorite verse on the list, self-awareness that sometimes you and I are annoying. Chapter 25, verse 17 says, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. (laughs) Ben Franklin said that guests are like fish. They stink after three days. Friendships are meant to be good gifts, but our selfish sinfulness can make them go awry. So where do we turn when friendships have left us broken or left us feeling disappointed? Well, in parenting, we turn to God, our Father, and Christ, the obedient Son. In marriage, we turn to Christ, the faithful groom. Here in friendship, we turn to Christ, the ultimate friend who sticks closer than a brother. Instead of taking revenge on his enemies, Christ redeemed his enemies by showing kindness to them. Dying for them, Jesus made his enemies his friends. Oh, have friendships or the lack thereof left you disappointed or feeling broken? Well, hear the words of Catherine von Schlegel, her 1752 hymn, Be Still My Soul. When dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears, then you will better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Now, as broken sinners, healed and redeemed by Jesus, now Jesus lifts our head so that we can be a friend like he is a friend to us. That's what we read in John chapter 15. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. This means that true friendship requires selfless, loving sacrifice. So do you want true friendships? Well, it's going to take sacrifice. It will, be, it will take sacrifice to be the one who takes the initiative. Think about this. Christ took the initiative with us. We reflect him because Jesus loved us before we loved him. So we sacrifice and take the initiative with others. Do you want true friendships? It's going to take sacrifice. You can't just love friends when it's easy and fun, but when it's hard. Chapter 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Do you want true friendships? It's gonna take sacrifice. You'll need to sacrifice your anger and forgive. Chapter 19, verse 11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is its glory to overlook an offense. Do you want true friendships? It will take sacrifice. You'll need to sacrifice your pride and confess when you're wrong. Chapter 28, 13, verse 13 again. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And do you want true friendships? You will need to sacrifice your comfort and your vulnerability. You'll actually have to talk about real, honest stuff. Chapter 27, verse 6 and verse 9. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do you want true friendships? It's going to take sacrifice. You'll have to sacrifice your time, sacrifice your convenience, sacrifice your agenda. I'm not sure what exact proverb this falls under, but I think it's behind all of the proverbs about friendship. Because I'm not sure how you can be close to somebody, how you can trust somebody, how you can enjoy somebody, how you can give good counsel to somebody, how you can support somebody if you don't spend time with somebody. 
So maybe instead of another hour of TV, it's an hour on the phone catching up with a friend. Maybe it's a willingness to stay an extra half hour here once corporate worship is done. Maybe it's a willingness to include friends in everyday life, holidays, house projects, Sunday dinner, t-ball games, working out. Maybe it's a willingness just to do stuff together and not alone. Would you join me in praying that this would be a people who aren't just friendly, but that we would be a people who have friends. Pray that God would so fill us with Christ that we would be willing to make the sacrifice that friendships take. So here we are, people. They bless us and they stress us out. When it comes to our relationships, we openly confess and lament our failure and our sin. We cling to Christ who died to forgive and redeem us from our sin. And because of Jesus, we have hope for our relationships to be what God intended them to be. So join me in praying and pursuing godly parenting, godly marriages, and godly friendships. To the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we find ourselves in you and not us. Thank you, Father, for loving us perfectly loving us sacrificially, not sparing your own son. Thank you, Jesus, for your trusting obedience, your sacrifice for us, your rescuing us as the faithful groom, your giving your life as our friend. Help us, God, to reflect you in all of our relationships so that we may be the salt and light in the world that you intended us to be, so that our relationships would be the good gifts you intended them to be. So Lord, at this moment, if if we feel like our relationships are off, if they're broken, if they've left us disappointed, we pray that you give us the hope that you offer in Christ alone and that you can begin to place us on a path where we live out the gospel by which you have redeemed us. We are things like honest and humble and secure and a sacrificial friend. Please help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.